the Water Values Podcast, Session 133. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. Have an absolutely fantastic show for you. You're really going to enjoy this one. We have Jeff Keitlinger with the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. He does a great job talking about resiliency, both from a water supply kind of diversity perspective, as well as from an infrastructure pers- uh, perspective, talking about you know seismic activity, uh, wildfires, things of that nature. Uh, and he also does a great job talking about regionalism on both a macro and a micro level, kind of micro within kind of intra-metropolitan and on a macro level within the Colorado River Basin. Very interesting stuff. I think you're going to find it very, uh, very useful and very insightful on uh, Jeff's part because he does an absolutely amazing job uh, explaining what Metropolitan does in these areas. We also have Reese Tisdale with us for another Bluefield on Tap segment. Reese is going to give us some insights into uh, you know conference season. You know, uh, so Ace was a while ago. We have WefTap coming up. Uh, so the, and, and it's going on right now, actually. So there's all kinds of things going on. Reese gives us uh, some great insights into what kinds of programs are going on and who's putting them on. Uh, just has some interesting analytics on that stuff. So I think you're really going to enjoy Reese's, uh, Reese's Bluefield on Tap segment. So here we go with uh, the little housekeeping we typically do. Uh, last time I was in a bit of a rush, so I wasn't able to get to uh, the latest five-star uh, review on Apple Podcasts. And this is from Greg UCLA. Uh, he says uh, in the title line, very informative and diverse guests. And his, uh, his narrative is there are a few good water podcasts out there now, but this is the best from a utility perspective and from a social science perspective, which is where I am most interested. You can also go back to the archives and most episodes remain relevant despite time of taping. Greg Pierce, UCLA Luskin Center for Innovation at Greg S. Pierce. Greg, thank you so much. Uh, that one really means a lot because, uh, obviously UCLA Luskin Center, uh, for innovation, uh, prestigious institution, and uh, having that type of praise uh, from a, an individual there is is great. So, Greg, thank you so much. Terrific uh, rating and review. And if, if you've been enjoying the podcast, would really appreciate it if you go on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever podcast directory you listen to the show on and leave a rating and a review. The reviews are important because just like Greg did, he you know, he, he, he – told listeners why they ought to listen to the Water Values Podcast. Uh, before, with that, let's get on to the Bluefield on Tap segment with Reese Tisdale. So here we go. Well, Reese, welcome back to another Bluefield on Tap segment. Great to have you. How's, how's things going? Uh, things are good. Things are good. Today. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of conference season, what 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 what's kind of going on at all these conferences? First off, what conferences have are you going to, or have you been at, and kind of what's what's the vibe at those conferences? Uh, so one, I, I was just at the Water Reuse Conference Symposium in Austin, which was a good conference. I've been to that uh, a number of times year over year, and it's not getting any smaller. I can tell you that. <laughs> focused on uh, 
One was industrial and commercial reuse, what can sort of beyond the municipal sector, but also uh, a big part of the discussion was um, decentralized water or wastewater treatment and reuse uh, at or individual facilities. That could have been just me, but I think where I was going, even though I was talking to you, but that seemed to be a key theme. And then uh, the next one coming up is uh, WebTech, which starts uh, next week. Yeah, the big one. <laughs> that's a lot of that's a lot of people how much water that will 32,000 people use during WEFTEC just, just yeah. <laughs> the AIDS conference which is more water focused in Las Vegas they had a water main break in the hotel <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's a lot about that um, so so kind of what what are we people talking about obviously water reuse they're talking about reuse but what are the big kind of themes running through these conferences that you're noticing Yeah, so so kind of what what's the general nature of uh, the the speakers and who's talking? engineering firms really 
let's say, dictate, but they have a heavy influence on what is happening in the market. Um, I was just surprised at just the number. So, like I mentioned, Brown Caldwell, they're on 40 presentations or panels, almost 39, I think, to be exact, uh, according to outcount. And it's pretty significant. Out of 800, you know, 850 presentations, it's it's pretty big. And there's a lot of time and effort that goes into these papers. Um, it's mostly wastewater focused. And in 75% of the presentations are really on technology, which is something that I found interesting. So the rest of it is sort of left to, you know, the costs and economics of, of you know, systems and very little discussion on business models, which is an area we're focused on. And that was kind of what I was looking for, quite honestly. Yeah, well, with all the dis- discussion about P3s, that that it just seems to predominate how how the public sector needs to tap that that private capital. I'm I, I guess I'm a little surprised that there is not more uh, there aren't more offerings at Weftech on, on on P3 and and like you say, kind of the the, the business model aspect of it. Yeah. That's where that's where we're seeing things happening. But you look, we'll see. I'll be there next week uh, over the course of the week. I look forward to it. It'll be really exciting because there'll be a lot of people. Yeah. And, uh, a lot of discussion to be had. Awesome. Well, Reese, as always, greatly appreciate your insights on the water sector. And uh, thanks so much for coming back on. We'll talk soon. All right, Dave. Take it easy. All right. <laughs> Bye. Well, as always, Reese does a great job giving us some market insights and insights uh, at this point into conference season and what's going on there. Uh, Thanks, Reese. Always a good job. And it's time to turn our attention to the feature interview today with Jeff Keitlinger of the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. You're really going to enjoy this. Uh, As I said at the top of the show, Jeff does a fantastic job explaining in simple terms some resiliency issues and some regionalism issues. So I, I think you're really going to enjoy this. Uh, get ready for a great interview. So fasten your seatbelts, turn on the valves, and here we go. Well, Jeff, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you could come back on. Um, the last time you were on back uh, in December of 2017, I don't, I don't know that we did the full introduction where you got to tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water. So could you kind of fill us in on that? Yeah. Uh, so, and always fun talking to you. <laughs> so I was, uh, uh, my, originally out of law school, I decided I wanted to be a criminal lawyer, and I was a prosecutor for a while, and that became a little bit like, to my mind, a little whack-a-mole. <laughs> over and over and over again. And I then started working on other aspects of government work and started helping cities with planning. And I really became interested in environmental issues, and I, I worked on things like solid waste issues, sewer issues, uh, Clean Air Act issues, mainly at the city, local government level. 
And uh, then I got approached by the Metropolitan Water District, and I'd never worked on clean water issues, and it was sort of, and I thought about it, and I said, well, that's interesting. It's sort of a hole in my resume, and but I like natural resource issues. So I started working with the Metropolitan Water District uh, 10 years after I'd been a lawyer, and became into their general counsel's office, started working on water rights, and I, I'm a history major out of college, and so I love history, and I found water law is the perfect <laughs> because it really is the history of California, is the history, and, and the whole West is really the history of the development of water. You know, the, you don't develop if you don't develop your water supplies, and it's all intertwined in history. And uh, it's been a perfect fit for me, and I, I've been doing it now for the last 25 years. Terrific, and, you, and you're still at Metro, right? So um, tell us a little about uh, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, you know, in terms of geographic scope. Uh, volume of water, things of that kind of. What are you What are you pushing out there? Now, Metropolitan Water District. When I joined them in '95, uh, I got to learn their history, and it's a fascinating institution. Uh, originally, city City of Los Angeles started to develop in the Los Angeles uh, area, the southwest corner of uh, California, and City of Los Angeles originally started developing and pretty much ran out of water in the 1900s and went to the Owens Valley to develop its own water supply. Famously, William Mulholland basically bought up the valley, developed the aqueduct, a marvelous piece of engineering, almost 300 miles, entirely gravity-fed, uh, delivered water in 1913. And he knew that wasn't going to be enough supply forever. And so already in the 1920s, he started looking around and decided to go to the Colorado River as the next source of supply for Los Angeles. And they didn't have enough money to pull it off. They needed to actually bring in more of Southern California, and the concept then became form a consortium of cities, and 13 cities banded together and became the Metropolitan Water District in 1928, and these were places like Beverly Hills, Santa Monica, Glendale, Burbank, Anaheim. They all came together and formed Metropolitan, and they built the Colorado River Aqueduct, and that started delivering water to Southern California in 1941, and slowly but surely, it the region grew and all annexed to Metropolitan. And again, we started needing new sources of supply. And in the 1950s, we looked to Northern California, uh, teamed up with Governor Pat Brown in 1960 to develop the State Water Project, which got water from the Northern Sierras and brought it all the way down to Southern California in the Central Valley. And so those are our two main sources of supply, uh, the Colorado River and our Northern California Sierra supply. They supply about 55% of all of Southern California's water. The rest of our water is local water, uh, our groundwater basins and our rainfall. And we typically sell about 1.8 million acre feet of water a year. We deliver about a uh, little less than a, a couple billion gallons of water a day, uh, about 5,000 acre feet of water a day. And so those are our two main sources of supply. It's a lot of water. And as Southern California has grown, we continue to annex. We now are starting Ventura County, Los Angeles County, Orange County, parts of Riverside and San Bernardino County, and all of San Diego County. That's 19 million people we deliver water to, one in every two Californians, or put another way, one in every 16 Americans. <laughs> wow, that, that is, uh, that's some incredible scope. Uh, I, I found it interesting about the diversity of supply uh, with the Colorado River, the Northern Sierras. Uh, what, 
you know, in terms of supply diversity, what are, you know, how, how are you going about uh, looking at ensuring a diverse supply for the future to, to, to get the additional water supplies your the, the metro area is going to need? Right. And so the, the conservation movement uh, is, is interesting. Are, are there specific programs that you've identified that are, that are very successful or, or more successful than others uh, in, in helping you conserve all that water?
hodgepodge of programs. You know, Los Angeles would do something and San Diego would do something differently. And Anaheim and Glendale would have different programs. And so we kind of brought them all in-house and regionalized all of Southern California uh, so that everybody, whatever hardware store you went into, would have access to the same kind of rebates and the same sorts of programs. And so by you know, taking it across geographic boundaries and political boundaries, it really helped drive uh, conservation. But what we found is, you know, it's like anything, we're, net, we're now um, squeezing harder and harder and getting less and less. And you have to, you know, we've taken all that low-hanging fruit and picked it. So we're now focusing on, still on indoors on sort of high-end products, mainly uh, clothes washers and dishwashers. But we're really pushing outdoor. And in this last drought, we put our outdoor program on steroids. We typically do about... 25 to 30, 40 million dollars a year across all of Southern California in conservation. And in the drought, we always have a, a piggy bank set aside a nice big trust fund for buying water. There wasn't any water to buy in California in 2014, 15 when our drought hit unprecedented levels. And basically we took all our reserves and put it into conservation. We've spent uh, roughly 350 million, a 10 times increase from 35 million to 350 million in a two-year period on having people rip out lawns. Wildly successful, we removed 170 million square feet of turf in Southern California in two years. And even though it may not have resulted in huge swings in water supply right away, it really woke up the public to you know, dealing with the drought and was a, the, the, out, the response was amazing. Yeah, yeah. And what about uh, non-revenue water? Uh, to the extent that you can incentivize your customers, those those constituent water utilities for all those municipalities, uh, are there ways to to provide that incentive for them to reduce non-revenue water? Primarily, we've worked with our um, our cities. You know, we're the wholesaler, so we've worked with our cities on dealing with non-revenue water. Uh, primarily with technology, uh, getting them the resources where they can look at leak detection. We're a little bit lucky here in Southern California, and you know, different from the East Coast in the sense that. A lot of our development was later. So we do have some older communities like Los Angeles where they have maybe 50 to 80-year-old pipes. But a lot of our areas, the Orange Counties regions, a lot of San Diego region, we're talking 30-year-old um, supplies. And, and so non-revenue water leaks and system leaks, less an issue in Southern California than it is in other areas. Yeah, and I, I bet the, uh, the 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 change in seasons, like here we have in where I am in the Midwest, there's a big you know freeze thaw that causes the ground to shift, and 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 the pipes can get damaged that way, which I don't think you're going to be dealing with down there in Southern California. Um, well, we have the stable climate. We do have earthquakes. Though. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that that brings that's a great segue to get us into. Uh, kind of how you built, you're building a resilient supply and a resilient delivery uh, uh, infrastructure system. Uh, you know, how do you deal with climate change and, you know, the risk of seismic activity, that kind of thing? What what kind of programs or design is in place to, to, to you know, look forward and, and make sure that the supply is resilient into the future? It's been a real area of focus for us this last decade, probably the last 15 years. California has gone through pretty severe drought from 2006. Uh, one of our main sources of supply, the Colorado River, has been in drought since 2000. Uh, almost we're moving on towards 20 years. And the new science is showing some of this drought's permanent. It really is being driven a lot by climate change. We've had a 
couple of recent years on the Colorado River that were average precipitation, but we're only getting about 90% runoff. And really digging into it, you know, trying to find where did that 10% of water go, it's really being it's really being lost to the system due to higher temperatures and early onset of spring, more plants coming into uh, bloom, uh, taking up water, and so it's never even reaching the runoff, it's never reaching the reservoirs. So we've really been rethinking how, as we get move into a climate change world, also we know we're in a seismic world, how do we deal with those, you know, a gradual shift or a dramatic shift? And part of our strategy, probably our main strategy, has been really beef up our storage. We know we're still gonna have incredible wet years periodically, uh, but rather than just sort of let those go by, we're going to grab as much water as we can in the big wet years and store it away for what we know are gonna be four, five, six, seven dry years in a row. And so in the 1990s, Metropolitan only had the ability to store maybe half a million acre feet of water in Southern California. We now have the ability to store in Southern California and outside about five million acre feet. We've grown it tenfold. It's come at the, some price. We've spent billions of dollars on these programs, but we've built reservoirs, we've built plumbing into it, we've uh, expanded our well system with groundwater basins, and we've entered partnerships with uh, the United States so we can bank water in Lake Mead, also bank water throughout the Central Valley in California with ag districts. All that has really saved us. In this last decade, we probably would have been at somewhere 50% or more rationing. We would have looked a lot like Australia during their millennial drought or perhaps even Cape Town. But we had these huge reservoirs of storage that really cushioned the blow. So when we went into a drought in 2006, Metropolitan had 3 million acre feet of water in storage. We got it all the way down to below a million, had a big wet year. We shot right back up to 3 million pulled it all the way down to a million acre feet again. And 2017 was the wettest year on record after four years of record-breaking drought, and we've refilled our reservoirs again. And so that, that ability to have the plumbing and storage uh, is really the key to a climate change world. Yeah, yeah. And what, one of the other things that climate change, at least uh, from, from some of the literature I've read, is uh, you know with, with drier conditions, there's a larger chance of wildfires uh, and I know that that impacts water quality. Do you have any thoughts on, because I know that, that it's, it seems with greater frequency there are reports of wildfires and actual wildfires in, in California. How, how do you deal with that? And, and what issues does the wildfires, what issues do the wildfires cause? Huge issue for California as a state and, and the whole Southwest. Uh, we used to think of our fire season as starting in August and kind of going through October you know, the tail end of summer and the, at the end of the heat after everything's dried out. And now uh, we're pretty much learning that our fire season is looking year round. There, we maybe sometimes get January, February off, off and maybe sometimes March and that's about it because uh, it's just getting hotter and drier all the time. And as it gets hotter, things dry out and we just burn. And then, you know, lack of precipitation means that everything dries out and there's a lot less green foliage. So it's going to be a huge management issue, particularly in our watersheds. Uh, we're pretty concerned about what eventually that's gonna do to our water supply. Up till now, it hasn't seemed to have had water supply impacts. There are some quality impacts we're seeing. Uh, certainly our, our reservoirs have been silting up more as runoff. There's been ash that gets into it. Not overly dramatic and the actual supply, again, not huge impacts but huge impacts and concerns for the state of California. We, we set aside a 
you know, they fund our firefighting program. They ran out of money this year in August, uh, which is almost before the start of the <laughs> year. Wow. And had to go back, yeah, and had to go back and get emergency funding from the state to fund it through uh, right now, which is really start our start of our real fire season here. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and uh, let me let me follow up on a point I I tried to make earlier. Is is there any way to uh, develop a resilient water supply from a seismic activity or, or resilient infrastructure from the seismic activity uh, perspective? Um, I, I'm just kind of curious about that 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 issue. We've given a lot of thought to it, and we've settled on we have to have a pre-event strategy and a post-event strategy. So pre-event, we're always studying, particularly every. About every decade, you have a pretty major earthquake, and then we always take a hard look at everything we've learned. We've also taken taken lessons from Japan and elsewhere around the world that have a lot of experience. So we look at our critical our critical places you know, and harden them as to with the best technology we have. We we're spending we budgeted over this decade um, close to three or four hundred million dollars in just seismic retrofitting of our critical infrastructure where we know we can't afford for it to go down for long periods of time. And we're, you know, looking around the world, what's the best technology for hardening? Uh, right now, we're looking at a lot of our key main pipes and borrowing some technology from Japan where they've put in, you, you hear lots about flexible pipes on the small scale, one, two inches. These are six and eight foot pipes that are have flexible and bendable joints. And we're experimenting with that as well. All that's our pre-event strategy. But we know at the end of the day, when we get a 7.0 or greater earthquake, no matter how much we harden, there's going to be pretty significant damage. And so we built up a lot of resources for post-event strategy. So we do two things. One is we store water. We always keep 600,000 acre feet. That's roughly six months of supply with rationing in Southern California at all times. We don't touch it even during a drought. That's our earthquake water. And if, our, if the main aqueducts are severed, we know we can go by six months of with the water supply that we keep in the region at all times. Then we built up our own resources. We have a world-class machine shop that can manufacture anything in our system. And we put it out on loan and we manufacture specialty things all year round. But the idea is that if we lose our pumps on our aqueduct, our 1930 uh, era pumps that are, have been retrofitted, we know if we go on order, we have to get them from Japan or Germany and it'll be six months before they come. We can't wait that long. So our machine shop can manufacture a brand new pumps to go into our 1930s um, infrastructure and we can get it done in weeks. And so we can roll pipe and we have all that crews standing by that do that. So an example in the, the Northridge quake in the 1990s knocked out our largest plant, our largest water treatment plant. And that's the second largest in the world, our Jensen plant. And the original estimate was that could be down for six months. And our crews had it up and running in 12 days, uh, working around the clock with our own equipment, our own cranes, our own trucks. And so that post-event strategy is very critical. So we know we have the equipment and supplies stockpiled to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting. Vertical integration as a uh, resilience feature. So that I, I think that's a great strategy. Um well, let's turn a little bit. You've, you've mentioned uh, the formation of metropolitan water and how you've annexed recently. I, I, I want to explore regionalism because I think that is becoming a bigger and bigger issue around uh, around the country. 
I, I've been a big proponent of consolidation amongst utilities for, to, you know, just to gain efficiencies, be, to deal with the labor shortage, things of that nature. Uh, I, I, I'd like to pick your brain a little on, on how you get new areas to come on board and become a part of metropolitan watering. What, what do you see as the, the, the impetus for those, those areas coming on board? What are the common issues that you're dealing with? And, and I'll just stop there. Cause I've got a, I got a bunch of questions, but I, I, I don't want to overburden you <laughs> right out of the gate. Right. So I, I, I have questions, I guess, on the micro level, just kind of within your footprint and also on the macro level where, where you kind of identified the, the Colorado River Basin. I'll start at the micro level. Um, 
One of the common things, common impediments I see in regionalism is the issue of rates. Everyone's worried the other guy is going to get the better infrastructure, but we're all going to have to pay for his rates and, and all that. So how, how do you deal with kind of capital contribution, uh, rate design, you know, things to, just to, to placate or ensure that your member utilities, uh, that they have faith that, that they're not going to be the ones who are subsidizing the other communities? It's a real challenge. We haven't had that. Uh, we've had to work through those issues every decade, it seems, at Metropolitan. And it, it doesn't come easy. Uh, we're, you know, even though Southern California is a semi-arid region and has a lot of continuity in that respect, we it's still very different. We have areas that have very productive groundwater basins, a real strong source of supply, and they only need some of their water from Metropolitan. And then we have other areas that don't have the groundwater basins and limit lower rainfall. And Metropolitan is their almost their exclusive source of supply. And so obviously their costs then are very different. And those with groundwater often want to see cheaper water delivered, raw water. Those who have to have old treated are concerned about the cost of treatment. So it's been a tension within Metropolitan. We've always ascribed to a philosophy that whatever is good for one helps everybody. It's a regional benefit. And so that, therefore, if you build a recycling plant in part of the region, Metropolitan should help fund it. We know that recycled water is only delivered to its local residents. It's not moving across all of Southern California. But all Southern California chips in, subsidizes it, helps it get built, because it then frees up water, imported water, for other people to use. And they have more of that resource. But Every time, I've, I've not gone a decade without everybody saying, maybe we should revisit that, maybe we should look at it. It's, it's hard for me to keep paying for you know, projects and other service areas. I don't feel I always get that same benefit. And always after we have a long-spirited debate, everyone goes back to, you know, we're going to stick with our philosophy of a regional approach, regional benefits. Everybody pays the exact same price, even though we know geographically some are closer to the end of the pipe or the front of the pipe. We're all going to pay the same and share in that. And so far that philosophy has held, and it's been 80-some years of that. Great. And and on the macro level, uh, the partnerships you mentioned with kind of the inland utilities, I'll call them, are those just water-sharing agreements or – uh, do you see kind of uh, participation by inland states, inland utilities in, let's say, a desal plant on the coast or or some other kind of water supply that will allow uh, – have a cascading effect up upriver, so to speak? I think we have to. Um, so right now we're working very closely on the Colorado River, and I think we're on the cusp of completing what we're calling a drought contingency plan. Uh, you know, we're, we're facing the fact that starting in 2000, it's been dry essentially every single year for 18 years, and we can't afford to keep waiting for the hydrology to turn around. So we're, we're negotiating a seven-state drought contingency plan, which will call for voluntary contributions of water, cutbacks in water use uh, by all three lower basin states, and that water to be stored in Lake Mead for the greater good. Uh, very difficult negotiation, obviously. Everyone's reducing their own takes and their own supplies uh, voluntarily, but that's a tough negotiation. But at the end of the day, that is a tourniquet. We're just stopping the bleeding. We're not reversing course here. We're not growing the pie, and we have to grow the pie. 
And the only way to grow the pie is going to be with some of those regional projects like you mentioned. And some of that might be ocean desal for those of us on the coast, maybe cost sharing, it's extremely expensive. And the impacts then would be here locally on energy and footprint. And so we would get potentially cost sharing from those upstream inland agencies. And then they would have a greater access to some, maybe back off some of our Colorado River demands. That can be done with recycled water. Ag intensive states. Metropolitan has a very innovative program we're very proud of in the Palo Verde Valley where we pay farmers to fallow on a rotating basis and free up water for our use. That can be repeated upstream, uh, and then, but then perhaps with our funding, freeing up some of that water from upstream agriculture and shift it around. All these are controversial. All these are difficult because you have all the not in my backyard issues and what are my local impacts and how do we cure them. But it, that's got to be the way of the future. That's the only way to augment our supply and grow the pie. Right, right. Uh, so, so Jeff, you've been very generous with your time. We're, we're coming up on 30 minutes here. Uh, are there any, is there anything that I have not asked that you think is important to get across to the listeners? You know, what, what, what would be your kind of closing remarks in that regard? Great. Well, Jeff, thank you very much for, for your time. Really appreciate it. You've been absolutely fantastic filling us in on on the issues that the Metro is facing, uh, as well as that whole region, the Colorado River Basin. Uh, for those folks who want to find out more about you, about Metropolitan Water, where can they go to get that information? <laughs> you're a great Twitter follower. I, I, I love uh, that, that you don't restrict yourself to simply water issues, which, which is obviously a big part. But, but I, I remember seeing one just the other day uh, where, where uh, someone had tweeted something about uh, talking heads, and you said, I still have the vinyl. So <laughs> uh, it's a great Twitter follow. It's very interesting. So uh, I, uh, My staff is not so sure about it. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, again, Jeff, I really want to say uh, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jeff Keitlinger of the Metropolitan Water District, Southern California. And I think, I think you'll agree with me what I said at the top show. He does an absolutely amazing job explaining all the different facets of how uh, the Metropolitan Water District, Southern California has built in resiliency from a water supply perspective, from an infrastructure perspective, as well as kind of the, the, uh, the regionalism approach and the interconnectedness he talked about. I think that is really important, and, and he just said it so so eloquently. Uh, I'm, I'm just very impressed, and I really, again, appreciate him taking time out of his day uh, to talk with me about water issues. So, again, Jeff, thank you so much. Well, I would love to hear what you thought about that interview. You can check out the show notes and leave your comments uh, for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod one three three. Uh, or you can email me. My email is david at thewatervalues.com. You can tweet at me. My handle is uh, at DTM1993. And you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And uh, as I indicated at the top of the show, please do me a favor, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, whatever podcast directory you're listening to. And if you want to financially support the show to make sure future episodes can come through, would really appreciate that too. Any denomination is helpful. You go to thewatervalues.com, scroll down a little bit on most of the pages. I think all the pages, there is a little, um, uh, PayPal button, uh, look for the little gold button. You click on that and any denomination helps defray the costs of putting the podcast on. There's hosting costs, you know, both media and web. There's all kinds of costs that, that you may not think about, but, uh, your help to defray the cost of putting on the podcast would be very appreciated. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.